Take your copy of God's Word, turn to Matthew chapter 13, our third uh, sermon in the chapter. Uh, We'll be starting in verse 44. I'll give you a second to get there. Matthew 13, starting in verse 44. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls who, on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers, but threw away the bad. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Have you understood all these things? They said to him, yes. And he said to them, therefore, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. And when Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there. And coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue so that they were astonished and said, Where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? Are not all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown and in his own household. And he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. Let's pray. Lord, you have spoken to us in the reading of your word. Would you now speak in its preaching? For Christ's sake, amen. It's a weird tension, I think, that we live in. In The time in which we live, in the world in which we live, I think for... Um, not all of us certainly, but for most of us, we probably have some of the easiest lives uh, 
in human history. Again, we can go to the dentist and have painkillers. That's pretty impressive. Not trying to knock out your own tooth with a screwdriver to get the pain to go away. Anything's better than that. We have such easy lives. We have computers that can do math for us. I mean, to think about that these little devices that we have with us all the time, they're more powerful than the computers that sent the first men to the moon. We have so much ability in front of us. We can talk to people on the far sides of the world. We can uh, video call with them. You can have loved ones go far away and FaceTime with them or whatever you wish. So much kind of before us. It's really genuinely shocking. But it's a tension because while we have so much kind of ease to our life in a way that I don't think people have ever had in human history, there's a tension to that because even as we live in such an easy time, in such an easy way, and in such an easy life with greater luxury than people have ever known, we feel the kind of incongruity in our souls where we know that it, that just doesn't feel right. And our emotions kind of constantly whisper in our ears and say, well, it might be easy for others, but it's not easy for me. My life's so hard. Well, I mean, yeah, no. I mean, I'm not chopping wood every day to make sure my family doesn't freeze to death. We're not having to grind our own flour to make, you know, bread so that we all don't starve to death. We're... It's not as hard in many ways, but in other ways it is. And I think one of the ways that is probably kind of unique to our time is I suspect that we live with a greater amount of distraction than any people in human history. We have more glittering lights in front of our eyes, more sparkling things to look at, more movement in the corner of our eyes and our peripheral vision to kind of constantly keep our heads turning. And I suspect that that's actually, out of all the the difficulties that we live in, all of the the challenges of the world in which we live, all of the, the struggles of living in a mechanized era where we've been largely divorced from the land and divorced from our neighbors, and we live in a world where we're constantly connected but never connected, out of all of the struggles that we have, I suspect the most challenging is just the debilitating level of distraction. And part of the consequence of uh, this level of distraction that's just constantly moving in front of us and constantly, you know, keeping our eyes from seeing what we need to see, the consequence is that we miss a lot of the important things in life. I mean, in terms of a kind of a silly illustration, I think that living in a postmodern world, living in the time in which we live, it's, it's a lot like trying to play baseball in the middle of a ticker tape parade. Right? If you're the batter, how on earth are you supposed to see the ball coming if there's confetti falling everywhere? 
right? Your eyes are seeing everything moving all at once. You can't see the pitch. You can't tell how fast it is. You can't tell if it's going to curve at all. There's, there's no way to be able to discern what's happening with that. How on earth are you supposed to be successful? So much of the life that we live is just a constant stream of confetti falling and, and keeping our eyes from being able to see that which is important. And then think about how much we've really moved the important things so that they're easier to ignore. I mean, think about it. So few people ever have death happen inside the home anymore. I mean, if you have death inside your home and you can remember the room where your loved ones passed into the life to come, it adds a sense of meaning every time you walk by. You know, God's sweet mercy that we don't bury very many children anymore. I read a biography just this week of a gentleman. I think he buried three wives and something like 13 children. Wow. We have so much of the important things of life kind of divorced from us and lets us get distracted by the simple and easy and the, the foolish and the nonsensical, the, the confetti of life. I think the end of Matthew chapter 13 presents a little bit of a contrast to that. In fact, actually, perhaps a bit of a confrontation to the way that many of us have let ourselves live. We've let our brains operate. We've let our hearts grow accustomed to. The first two parables here function in tandem. And again, this is where it becomes so incredibly important that we understand what a parable is. A parable is an extended illustration designed to teach. It's, it's not an allegory. Every little detail doesn't necessarily matter. In fact, the details that push the point are the ones that matter. These are the ones where it gets really important that we have that definition. Because here at the end of 13, Jesus has been teaching on his kingdom specifically. And Matthew has kind of lumped all these together so that we get kind of this just big kind of one lump sum contemplation on what it means to be in the kingdom of God. And he's set us out from the very beginning and recognizing that, look, the kingdom of God is a mixed kingdom in this place. We have some that are true Christians that grow and produce fruit. We have some that look the part on the surface. They have plants that grow, but no fruit produced. And while that might perhaps be a bit concerning to us, he's in the middle here, verses 31 and following, laid out for us again, this great reality is that though the kingdom looks mixed right now, and perhaps it might even look messy right now, and perhaps in some parts of the world the church might actually look like she's losing, it won't stay that way forever. He speaks of the inevitability of God's kingdom, that it is an inevitable thing. It can't be changed. It can't be interrupted. It will grow. It will come to consummation. It will come to fullness. It will come to full and total victory because Jesus is doing it.
And 44 marks a a bit of a change as he continues this thinking on the kingdom and thinking on its inevitability, but now turns largely to to force us to contemplate, how do I interact with that reality? Do I get caught up in the the confetti of life, looking at that which is uh, glittery and passing and fading, or do I contemplate the reality of the life to come? The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found. Now, it starts out with a a setting that is perhaps a bit strange to us as uh, we don't tend to ever really have that. You don't find buried treasure anymore, but uh, this was actually a much more common reality in the world in which they lived because they didn't have banking the way that we do. When we have our prized possessions, we convert it into this imaginary thing called money, and then we take the imaginary thing called money, and we store it at an imaginary house called a bank with people that we imaginarily trust. Back in this world in which you lived where Rome might, you know, come plunder your house at any moment, you would take that which is most valuable, and if you knew you were in danger, you'd take it out to a field and bury it, because it's probably safer in the field, then it'd be safer in your house. Jesus here in this parable doesn't explain to us why the man is is out there. He doesn't explain to us if the guy was working and his animal falls into a hole and finds money. We, We don't know if perhaps a creek flooded and there's erosion. We have no idea how he finds buried treasure. We know he does, though. And we know it doesn't belong to him. It's not his. The land on which he's working doesn't belong to him. And again, we don't know why that is. The impression that we get is the man who owned the money is probably long dead. So what happens is the the man in the story, the worker that we're following, he's found treasure. And so what does he do? He buries it back because he can't steal it. Then, I love how Jesus highlights it, in his joy, he goes and sells everything he owns to buy that field. Because he knows that which is buried in the field is of greater value than everything he owns. That treasure that he reburied, that treasure that he's seen, that he's glimpsed, that he knows of, is surpassing to every possession that he currently possesses. It would be the equivalent today of, uh, at some point, perhaps the, uh, the lottery is up into the big ridiculous numbers again. It's some obscene amount that no human probably needs to own and uh, you're walking through somebody's field or something and you find the lottery ticket right there in the field. Rather than steal the lottery ticket and try to cash it in, by the way, they won't do that because they'll know you've stolen it. Rebury it under the rock, go buy the land, buy the lottery ticket. Would you be willing to sell your house, sell all of your possessions in order to get the lottery ticket uh, to make back a thousand times as much? Well, that's good math, isn't it? Jesus here is highlighting for us in in just the simple kind of um, really two-sentence explanation that the kingdom of God is, is the treasure that surpasses all other treasures. 
I mean, what is the man giving up in order to gain this treasure? What is the man giving up in order to gain the kingdom of God? He's giving up everything. Absolutely everything he owns. I love contemplating kind of like the ramifications of what this would look like today. How much money would it take for me to buy all of your baby pictures so you never saw your childhood ever again? Right? Some of you would be like, that took a lot of money. Some of you, you might be had the awkward phase and you're like, I'll pay you to take those pictures and make them disappear, right? How much would it take for you to sell all of the memories of your children's childhood? Right? The memory box that you have that has those first pair of shoes that were so cute that you were just they were so adorable and you loved. And, and the first good grade they got and the picture they draw of, I love mommy. How much would it take to get you to give that up? The kingdom of God surpasses that value and every other value. He then intensifies it here with a second illustration. And this one is intriguing. Again, you don't get caught up in the details. The commentators foam at the mouth a little bit on this one because it's so interesting. It's talking about a a man who is a merchant who sells pearls. This is his trade. It's his industry. And, And this time, pearls were far more valuable than even they are today. Very difficult to harvest. Uh, but in a part of the world in which they could be harvested, and so much so that they were like notoriously expensive. Uh, to talk about kind of Roman opulence, uh, the legend is that Caligula's wife, consort lady, uh, had pearls everywhere. Ears, hair, dresses, necklaces everywhere to just flaunt that any one of the items that she was wearing in jewelry would cost more than you would probably make in a decade, perhaps two or three. Here, this is a gentleman who's in search of fine pearls. He's looking for the best of the best. And while he's out on his business dealings, he finds the great pearl. The one is the best and the most beautiful that he's ever seen. And so what does he do? He liquidates all of his resources, sells every other pearl that he's possibly ever owned. He sells all of his house. He he liquidates everything so that he can go and buy that one pearl. Talk about, again, point of parables is to highlight one key point usually. Usually, this is a really terrible idea, right? This is the equivalent of like, you know, the the college graduate that's like, I'm going to sell everything I own, quit my job so I can go buy a sports car. Please don't do that. That's how you starve to death. That's how you freeze to death. That's how you make a miserable life to sell everything that you own in order to get the one great thing. Um, This guy's liquidating his entire business for the one pearl. But the point, again, Jesus is making is that the kingdom of God is the treasure that surpasses all other treasures. You could have a million fine pearls. You could have a million pleasures and, and profits that this world has to offer, but even a million of those are lesser in comparison to the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is a treasure that surpasses all other treasures.
I was preparing this sermon, thinking through that point was such an interesting thought because I suspect that most of us that walk into this room or most of us that would stumble on this YouTube channel or watch it on purpose, most of us would probably readily agree with that. Not all of us, I'm sure, but most of us would readily agree with that intellectually. We would intellectually say, I agree that being a part of Jesus' kingdom is better than everything else. And then we immediately walk out of this room and disprove that statement. That's actually the part that I spent my energy thinking when I was thinking about I think most of us would agree with these. We would say, oh yes, of course, I 100% agree. Being with Jesus and the kingdom of God is better than everything else. And then we walk out and we fixate on our hurt feelings or we fix out on our anger or we fixate on our pleasures or we fixate on our distractions or we fixate on a million other things that then encourage us to disprove or attempt to disprove this statement. You know, in thinking through this, really beginning to realize that I suspect for many of us, we would say intellectually this is true, but emotionally it it doesn't matter at all. We We don't believe this at all. Again, if we're going to be honest, those little secret voices in our hearts and in our heads, we would say, well, I mean, I believe Jesus is good, and I believe his kingdom is great. I'm not sure I would say it's greater, and I certainly wouldn't say it is greatest, at least not in my life. Again, thinking back about it, of what would you be willing to give up for the kingdom of God? What would you be willing to give up? And I think this is actually one of those things that perhaps we we don't necessarily excel at. I mean, if you really kind of wanted to do the, the, the math backwards, you could say you can tell what's important to a person by how much they're willing to give up to get it. Right, many of us are like, oh, I love the idea of being fit and being healthy. I mean, I'm not willing to run or do any exercise, but I love the idea of being fit and being healthy. You're like, well, I hate to break it to you, you don't actually like being fit or being healthy. You just don't. You're not willing to actually do the things that are required. You're not willing to sacrifice in order to get the end. Many of us, I think, unfortunately approach Christianity the same way. We say, I love the idea of Christianity. I love the idea of the Scriptures. I love the idea of God's kingdom. I love the idea of Jesus reigning in my life, but I don't like the reality of it. I want to be my own king. You see, that's actually the setup that I had at the beginning with reading the confession in Deuteronomy. That's the warning that God gives to his people. He says, look, you're going to want your own king. And the problem is, kings that aren't God are bad kings. And what they try to do is rather than loving God's law and loving God's word and nourishing those things in our lives, kings accumulate possessions and pleasures and desires and glittering things and confetti and distractions that take us away from God. 
And the problem is, is that we all want to be our own king. We say, I want to be the ruler of my own heart. I want to be the ruler of my own mind. I want to have my own thoughts. I want to have my own feelings. I want to have my own desires. I want to live my own life. And we immediately do that which ought not to be done. Rather than sacrificing everything to go and pursue the kingdom of God, we accumulate distractions. And the privilege of growing up in a Christian home in a PCA church and having uh, very holy families kind of all around me that I got to see. And one particular that I remember growing up was uh, a mixed marriage. It was a very holy woman um, with married to an unbeliever. And I remember talking with her and listening into conversations when I was a child and hearing her say things like, look, I just want my husband to be saved. And I will give anything for that. If it cost me my life, I'm willing to pay it. She got terminal cancer in her early 40s. It was quick. It was painful. It was terrible. And it was homegoing. But through that, her husband was converted. He passed away four months ago, I think. I expect to see both of them in glory. Family members that I've known since I was probably nine years old. And you get to sit back and think, well, was it worth it for her? There's a woman that actually, I think, had the, the proper economy. She had the proper value set. What was she willing to give up in order to attain the kingdom of God for her and for her family? She's willing to give absolutely anything to be a part of the kingdom of God, and she did. And I suspect that were we to hear from her right now, she'd say it was all worth it. The reality is we live in a time in which it's so easy for us to be distracted by a COVID disease. Perhaps to be caught up in the fear that might accompany it or the rebellion against the fear that might accompany it. It's so easy for us to be distracted by a COVID response that's broad across nations and debilitating economies and changing jobs. It's so easy for us to be caught up in masks and regulations and our rights and our politics and our privacies. It's so easy for us to be caught up in the transition of one political party to another. It's so easy for us to be caught up in the invasion of our capital by American citizens. It's so easy for us to be caught up in a conversation about race and equality and income, and it's so easy for us to miss the kingdom of God. What are you willing to give up? You see, the reality is we're only willing to sacrifice for the kingdom of God if we actually see it as being something special, seeing something good, right? I remember years ago having a conversation with a gentleman in the church about how far we would drive for a good meal, 
Most of you know my taste buds are broken. I won't drive for a good meal. They're just, they're broken. He'll drive a long way for a good meal. For him, it's worth it. He'll sacrifice because he sees it as being worth it. We don't sacrifice for the kingdom of God because we don't see it as being worth it. Interestingly, Matthew provides a corrective immediately. Why is the kingdom of God worth sacrificing everything for? Well, 47, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net. You know, if you old English, you learn this as the parable of the dragnet. It is almost exactly the same as the parable of the wheat and the tares. <laughs> The parable of the weeds earlier in the chapter. The kingdom of heaven's like a net that was thrown into the sea. This is the kind of net that would have uh, probably weights at the bottom. It's like a sign net. Or you, you, you cast it out and then you just drag it behind the boat. You pull everything in and it catches kind of indiscriminately. It catches good fish. It catches bad fish. It catches trash that was floating in the water. It, it kind of catches everything. And when you're done and you've pulled it in, then you have this unenviable task of going through all of the things that are stuck in your net and figuring out what's valuable and what's trash. 48, when it was full, the men draw it in. They draw it ashore. They sit down and they begin to sort it into containers. The good fish go in one container. The eels, which were unclean, go into another container. Perhaps some of the catfish, that they didn't have scales and such. And then Jesus adds in the explanation of 49. So it's going to be at the end of the age. The angels are going to come and they're going to separate God's people, those that belong to his kingdom, from those that do not. And guess what? They don't end the same. What's going to happen? Well, the evil are, verse 50, they're thrown into the fiery furnace. It's not fully described as to what that means. It's not explained. We know it's miserable. Uh, We have the regular description that follows is what does that judgment look like? Well, it looks like weeping and the grinding of teeth. Yeah, I'll pass on that. You see, part of what Matthew is helping us to realize is that if we do not value God's kingdom, uh, we're missing out on kind of the benefits that it offers. One of the the kind of big-time benefits is that it offers us hope for death and the future. It provides an explanation for death and for the future. It gives us an anchor, a sense of stability, a strength for what the future holds and what happens when we die. And this is where that opening introduction to the sermon becomes so important because we live in a time in which, yes, there's so many distractions. We have so many things that we can do to stop thinking about death. It takes place out of the home. We don't have bodies that are in our home. We have them cremated so that we never see them again as they are. Death is removed from us, and now we have science that helps us prolong it so it's like it's so far away. The unfortunate reality is we don't actually know how far away it is. It could be your time to go today or mine. 
providentially watched Hook with the Kids last night. Great movie, I love that. Robin Williams is great. Has a great one-liner in it, though. He's afraid to fly at the beginning of the movie. He's walking out of his office, and he says, or the staff said, you know, don't worry. If it's not your time to go, you'll be okay. And he says, okay, fair enough, but what if it's the pilot's time to go? It's a great line. Classic Robin Williams. You see, what the kingdom of heaven does is it provides us a, 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 an ability to live without fear. We don't have to be afraid to die. We don't have to be afraid to live. Because we know what happens in the end. Again, this is one of the great many blessings that we have in the world in which we live is that it, we, we have such a good life that those things can be removed. Right? Most of us have not lost eight or ten children under the age of five. Most of us have not had to bury wives that died in labor and delivery with the child that we had been longing for. And so we, we put it away and try to shove it down and act like we can't see it. And again, it becomes like some weird endeavor in the emperor's new clothes that death doesn't actually exist. You see, the kingdom of God equips us to live for the future. It equips us to live in the life to come. It equips us for what comes after. But that's not it. I mean, that's not the only benefit that comes from being in the kingdom of God. That's, that's not the only reason why we should sacrifice for it, attain it at all costs. Now, friends, I'm going to go ahead and tell you right now, at best, 80 years on this life, you know, on this place, versus an eternity in the life to come, that just mathematically, you should choose the life to come. 80 versus eternity. Pretty simple math. Choose the good life forever. Although I acknowledge most of us are probably those that are um, <clears throat> a little bit more persuaded by our, that which we see immediately. Right? Again, if it's right in front of us, we'll, we'll, we'll choose that so often, so more frequently than we should. And I, I think the next section gets at that. <clears throat> Jesus asked them, have you understood all these things? Gives them opportunity to ask questions. They, for once, actually say, yeah, we got it this time. Thank you. We, we've, we, we understand. He's already explained to them two of these parables. And then Jesus gives them a charge, and I think this charge is incredibly encouraging for the children of God. He says, therefore, in light of all of this, in light of the kingdom of God, in light of these parables, every scribe who's been trained for the kingdom of heaven. So now he's specifically talking about a kind of person. Uh, what he's talking about is a, a scribe, an educated person, a person who knows the rules, knows the law, uh, but what kind, not a legal scribe, that would be a lawyer, uh, not just a written scribe, like a, you know, just a, a transcriber, a, a you know, secretary, office manager, things like that. Here is a scribe, a, a scholar of the kingdom of heaven. This is, he's talking about a Christian. Is like a master of a house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. A really hard one here. 
What he's describing in this illustration is uh, a person who, uh, being in the kingdom of heaven, is a person who owns all of the riches of creation, but it doesn't just get stuck in the past tense. It's designed to be in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. It's designed to be used and designed to be displayed. It's designed to be lived. What Jesus is getting at here is, what does it mean to be a part of the kingdom of heaven? Well, in the parable of the dragnet net, it means that you're prepared for, for death. It, you're prepared for the future. You're prepared for the life to come. But here with these treasures, it means that we're given these blessings now, and they're designed to be used now. So that those that are in the kingdom of heaven know the truth now, not just later. They have peace now, not just later. They have hope now, not just later. They have love now, not just later. All of this ultimately being fulfilled in the Lord Jesus. I'm running long, I'll go very quick. This kingdom of heaven is designed to be a blessing to us and a hope for us in the future for when our life ends. It's designed to be a blessing for us and a hope for us as our life continues now. And if you really have begun to understand the math of it, you would say, well, that is what I want. I want the good life now, and I want the good life for all eternity I want the kingdom of heaven. Unfortunately, the sad reality is that not everybody does that. In fact, this is where Matthew goes with it. Rather than giving us the happy ending right at the moment, he gives us the sad one. Where Jesus leaves Capernaum where he's been teaching, he returns to Nazareth. Where he had grown up, his family's there, his dad's been, or stepdad's been a carpenter there. His mother has had other children. They've watched the family grow up in the town. Everybody knows them, and he comes back and he begins to teach and showcase the reality of the kingdom of God and what happens. The entire town rejects him. Who is this? Who does he think he is? Who does he think he is? And in fact, actually, uh, an unwillingness to listen. So much so that you get just this unbelievably tragic ending. How chapter 13 ends is just terrible, isn't it? He didn't do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. They were so hard-hearted. But Jesus said, well, if you're not going to believe, I won't even do the miracles here. I'll just step back and reserves those for other places. To think that this is a town that had the living and true God walking in their midst and they're so hard-hearted they will not listen to God himself incarnate in their midst. And as a result of it, they don't get the good life now or later. They get the curse and wrath. Now, I would make just very briefly two applications for us. There are some of us, admittedly in a room this size, and now with YouTube, you never know who's going to be watching this. There are some of us that do not yet know the kingdom of God. 
And for those of you, the challenge is simply this. Do you want it? Do you want the treasure hidden in the field? Do you want the pearl of great price? Do you want the good life both now and into eternity? Do you want truth? Do you want hope? Do you want peace? Do you want Jesus? Now, the great reality is that the Lord Jesus offers this freely. It's a gift. He purchased his kingdom with his death, not yours, not mine. That's amazing. And he gives it freely. All you have to do is ask. Now, I I would give kind of one addendum to that. He does give it freely with terms. And the terms are these. There is one king forever. And it is him, not me, and not you. You want to be a part of the kingdom of Christ, all you have to do is ask, but he gets to be the king, not you. And honestly, that should be a pretty easy thing, as you've realized you've done a rotten job of it up to this point. Hasn't worked out that well for you already. What would make you think that you would do any better in the future? Secondly, for those of us that are in Christ, that are already children of God, already members of the kingdom of heaven, I might lovingly, but firmly challenge you to think about how much of your life is consumed by the confetti of the world. It's consumed by our pursuit of the simple pleasures of the land instead of that all-consuming pursuit of the kingdom of God. I've wondered that a lot, actually. What, What would 2020 have looked like If in the midst of a pandemic, we had watched not just this church, but the the big church across the world, if we had watched the church display that we wanted the kingdom of God at all costs, I don't know the answer to that, only the Lord does. Obviously, it wouldn't have been as good as what he's doing because he's perfectly wise. But I'll be honest with you. That's what I want my life to look like. A life that's consumed with getting the kingdom at all costs. May it be that his spirit would work in us that it would be so. Father, thank you for your word. Even when it hurts my feelings, may it be that we would be willing to sacrifice our feelings on the altar and have the kingdom of God instead. We are all such rotten, petty tyrants
would you please give us that perfect King Jesus instead, in whose name we pray. Amen.